You're listening to the Sojourn Mantras podcast. We're currently in the book of Philippians. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmantras.com. So we are in Philippians, and just to set us up really quickly, the, the, this letter is being written to a church in, in a city that's really just kind of a, a ragtag group of people. Like they're, they're from all different social stratas, economic stratas, even racial stratas. It's, it's just kind of this group of, of really weird people that have been brought together by the good news of the gospel being preached to them and them responding in faith. Right? And so what we've seen, that implication for us has been, is that when the gospel goes forth, it draws together a people who are unique, diverse, coming from all of those different areas, parts of society. And what it does is it bonds them into a people that then stand together in light of the gospel, in it, it, no matter sort of what happens to be the social sphere or the social, um, I guess, want of the day. Right, and so we we see that they're sort of coming underneath some attack from from different places, whether it's just the the general disdain for Christianity of the time, or even whether it's some who would want to sort of hijack this gospel and use it to further their own their own means, their own gain. Right, and yet Paul says with great confidence that this gospel is going to advance because it's filled with hope and because it unites again a people under the good news, the banner of Jesus. Um, and so this is where we find ourselves, right? He's, he's essentially encouraged this group of people who, right, we, we already know that when people are different, like things kind of rub, rub us the wrong way, right? When people think differently from us, when people behave differently from us, when people have different traditions or customs than we do, like it's hard for us to come together. And so Paul last week really encouraged this people to walk in light of Jesus's work, like to walk in humility towards one another, not to grumble, but to strive for one another, to consider, in fact, ourselves insignificant in order that we might consider others significant, right? And we talked about how that's just kind of weighty. Like that's, that's something that, that is, is difficult. Like I, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about other people's needs and, and desires or hopes or dreams. I think about my own. And so we talked about how, how the gospel really just completely and entirely reorients us, right? And yet out of that difficulty, I think what Paul is going to do today, as usual, is draw us back to our blessed confidence, right? Like Paul, over the last chapter, really called us to work, right? Like to put in effort, to strive, like to, to actually do things, right? And what Paul's gonna do is draw us to a place where we, where we do those things, and yet we don't place our confidence in those things. Where we, where we operate with humility and with grace towards one another. Where we do good things on one another's behalf. Where we serve one another and our city well, but we don't put our confidence in the fact that we do those things. And so he's just going to take us right back to the gospel. And Paul is really good at doing this um, all the time. So let's just start in verse one. And I'm, I'm just going to walk through this. Um, the sermon is titled, Our Blessed Confidence. Um, and we'll talk about confidence in Jesus, no confidence in the flesh, and no confidence in anything. Um, verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So for for Paul, it's not difficult at all to recount for them what he will next, which is just the gospel, 
right? And so for, for those of you that think, man, maybe you've been around for a while and you're like, man, they talk about that like a lot. Um, well, it's not difficult for me. And some of you may wonder, like, what is it like to get up in front of people and sort of have to say the same thing? I mean, how, how much can you really expound upon the good news? You know, how much can you really add? How much nuance can you, can you really bring to the table? Well, I think this morning, just like Paul, I very much feel like it is not difficult for me to say these things to you again. And then he goes on to say, in fact, it's safe for you. That he's drawing them again back into the safety of the gospel, their confidence being found in it. Verse two says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this probably for us conjures some imagery of like some just really heinous people, right? You know, like I think we, we probably would characterize this person as someone just very overtly evil, like that we could, maybe it's a murderer or, or you know, a, a rapist or a child molester or something like that. Like these, this is who we're picturing when he begins to use these kinds of words, right? Like the, the evildoers, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. And yet the people that, Paul is calling out in this are the religious people. Now, so at, in order to understand this verse, we need to understand again what it is that, that Paul is writing the Philippians to defend them from, to keep them safe from, right? And so at this time, there were a, a group of people called the Judaizers. And essentially what they were trying to do again was fuse or meld the gospel with Jewish tradition. Right? And so what they were preaching was that in order to be saved, yes, the gospel, but also circumcision, but also this list of rules and things to do and behave in kind with. And Paul is addressing these people, the overtly religious, right? Those who outwardly would seem like they have it all together. Those who would accept the gospel, but would just want to add on one little thing. Yes, the gospel, but also this. And Paul says, no, they're, they're evildoers. They're, they're dogs. In fact, their precious circumcision is just mutilation of the flesh. I think you will begin to understand how significant what Paul is saying here is as we, as we move throughout the text. So um, just bear with me. Verse three, the first part says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying, right? There's these, there's these people who would try to convince you that, that the good news is Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus this other thing. And he's saying, look, no, in Christ you have received every spiritual blessing. That, that we are the circumcision, that we have been drawn in by the gospel, purely through the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And then he says that we worship by the spirit. So in other words, our, our ability to worship Jesus, our ability to to worship Jesus for the righteousness which we have is provided for us by the Spirit. Now, I think we need to, to sort of explain that a little bit. And, and to do so, I'm gonna to go to Titus chapter three, where it explains for us, again, the, the work of the Spirit in salvation, right? Because again, we always like to sort of separate 
things into nice and neat little categories. And so we think there's, there's God the Father, and then we think there's Jesus the Son, and then over here is the weird cousin that is the Holy Spirit. And yet what we see is, from the Scripture is really that, that God is all together as the Father, as the Son, as the Spirit, operating for our good through the gospel of Jesus. And Titus chapter 3, uh, verses, verses 3 through, let's see, we're going to go through 7. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which is why Paul then says next, and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's what Paul is saying. Look, there's a, there's a teaching of the day that Paul is addressing that says, yes, gospel, but also this. And Paul says, no, just gospel. Just gospel. There, are, there is no work that you can do, right? He's like, if you, if you are circumcised, look, or if, or, or if that's what they're telling you to do or what you need to do in order to obtain the righteousness that is from God, it's a lie. That your righteousness is not yours that it's been bestowed upon you by the Spirit through the work of Jesus according to the grace of the Father. And so what is, what is Paul doing? He's for their safety, reminding them, look, there is nothing, there is nothing that you can do, earn, own, or purchase by which you can obtain the righteousness that is necessary before God. And yet it has been given to you. And for that reason, you have no need to put any confidence in the flesh. And what's so amazing about, I think this portion of text is that, right? We talked about how last week was just kind of heavy. Like that there's a lot that's required in following Jesus, that we have to give up our significance, that we have to seek to lay ourselves down, that we have to seek to serve others, to be about the goodness and the welfare of people besides ourselves. And Paul draws us in and he tells us, look, even when you fail at that, your righteousness is, is not in those things. It's in, it's in the work of Jesus. And at the same time as, as we're being encouraged by Paul, I feel like we're also being brought low by Paul in that we recognize, look, there is nothing in me. There is nothing in me that I can bring before a, a just and merciful God, a holy God. And yet I've been given everything I need to bring before him through the person and work of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, our salvation is utterly devoid of our works. Jesus, the immeasurable one, becomes measurable on our behalf, does the work required of us. The Spirit of God applies this good work to us by the grace of the Father, and this is where Paul is going to tell us our confidence lies. Now, 
I'm going to take a, a moment and just as an aside, because I think it's uh, appropriate. This doctrine, the, do- the doctrine of righteousness by faith alone, by grace alone, is something that, that, that men bled and died for, men and women alike. And so we, we just celebrate, I know Halloween's the big thing on October the 31st, but it's also Reformation Day. Um, and and this, this doctrine right here, what we're preaching from Philippians chapter three, this is what the core of that argument was all about. It was about whether or not our salvation was, yes, according to the grace of God, but also caught up somewhat with our works, which is essentially Roman Catholicism versus the pure, unadulterated gospel that says there is nothing, there is none righteous, not even one. And yet God saw fit to justify some by the work of the cross. And so there are, (laughs) this is why I think that it is necessary for any good pastor, any good preacher to call out everything that is not this. Because look, the the reason that you read the Bible in your language today, the reason reason that the gospel has arrived to us unadulterated, obviously is first and foremost through the, the, the grace and mercy of God, but it also has come through the faithful stand for truth from men and women of many generations before us. And they've stood on this doctrine and they've staked their life on it. And my prayer is that I would do the same, that we would do the same in order that our heritage, in order that our children and our children's children would come to see the magnificent glories of the gospel in this truth that, that tells us our righteousness is not our own. That our righteousness is by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Jesus alone, found in scripture alone to God's glory alone. All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse four reads like this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. All right, so what is Paul saying here? Right, I mean, is he hedging his bets? He's saying like, look, I have confidence in the flesh. Wait wait a second, you just told us that we shouldn't have confidence in the flesh. And what Paul is gonna do here is he's going to give us a case study, essentially a a, a reason or, or an example to look at. essentially for a reason as to why we shouldn't have any confidence in the flesh. And so Paul says this, look, if, if, if anyone should have confidence in the flesh, according to this sort of false gospel that the, that the Judaizers had conjured, which was, right, you, you, you have the gospel, yes, but you also have these works that you must accomplish. Paul says, look, if, if, that's, if that's true, I have reason for confidence. And he's gonna go through and he's going to list the reasons that he has every right to, to have confidence according to this false gospel. All right, so let's just keep reading. Verse five, it says this. I'll, I'll pick up the last part of verse four. If, any, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish custom, right? Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? So you... you you have this group, the, the, the Judaizers are very much in tune with their heritage. Like they're very much aware of like, hey, we're, 
we are the people of God, right? They've, they've been known as such for millennia. Like that's, that's really what most of this, the Old Testament about this, this people of God. So that, I mean, I think understandably they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulders in that they've been called the people of God since, really since time began almost. And, and so Paul is aligning with them. He's saying, look, like, I, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews even. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the rituals and customs. I was of the tribe of Benjamin even. He can trace his heritage back even to the tribe from which he comes, right? And then he goes on to say this, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, right? And so uh, the, the law is kind of important in, in this sect, in this false gospel, right? And so he says, yeah, according to the law, I was a Pharisee. And, and a Pharisee at the time was, was known or well-respected for their understanding of the law and their application of the law, right? So not just their ability to recite it, but their ability like, to walk blamelessly in light of it. Right? So Paul's just, he's continuing to align with them. He's saying, look, I get it. Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, a Pharisee. What else is he going to say? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, right? So not, not only was he an Israelite, not only was he descended from this, this sort of line, right, that's highly esteemed, but he's also highly esteemed within that as a Pharisee. And in terms of his zeal, it wasn't just some pretend zeal, like he was zealous for the law in such a way that he was willing to persecute the church itself, right? So he's like, I'm not kidding. Like I was all in, bought in, right? What's the next thing he's going to say? As to righteousness under the law, blameless, right? And that, now, now, we have to understand a little bit of what Paul's saying here because what, what could be misconstrued is that he is saying, I, I was blameless. But what he's saying is, is, is from an outward appearance, in terms of the standard of these, these Pharisees, these Judaizers, these people who would want to, again, preach this false gospel. He says, look, according to all that you guys are and all that you guys require from a person, I have all of those things and more. That's what, that's what Paul is saying, right? And then he goes on to say this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, right? So I think Paul's done a really good job of, of making a case for his own righteousness according to the law, right? He's done a pretty good case or he's, he's made a pretty great case. I think what we have to ask ourselves is, is why is he doing this, right? Is he saying, okay, if it's, if it's really like these Judaizers say, then I'm covered, so maybe we should do this also. No, that's not, not at all what he's saying. Paul does this for a very specific reason. Many times, those who preach the gospel of grace at this time were, were accused by these Judaizers of just being envious. Like, hey, you couldn't, you couldn't, reach up to our level. And so you just had to make the gospel all about grace because otherwise you're just kind of left out in the cold. And yet what Paul is doing is he's turning that completely on its head and he's saying, no, look, you should be envious of me according to your own rules. And then he says, but whatever I had that I could count as gain, I now count as loss, as loss. So, What does he go on to say? Verse seven, 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So here's the thing, just in case Paul had left any doubt, he's going to go ahead and, and widen his gaze to everything. Right? So, so Paul's not saying, look, it's not, we, we can put away our works or we can put away even sort of our, our good heritage. He's going to go on then to say, you know what? It's not just works and heritage. He says, anything, like all things, I'm ready to lose any and everything that I could possibly own, sense, enjoy, or desire for the surpassing greatness, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So this, this knowing of Jesus is, is of surpassing worth compared to anything. And so, brothers and sisters, what, what Paul is doing here is he is deeming all of which the world would consider worthy of our confidence as now unworthy of our confidence in light of what Jesus has done. That's what he's doing. In fact, he's, he's going to go so far as not only to say that, that that which this world deems confidence worthy is not only unworthy, but it's actually garbage, like refuse. If we want to get even more inappropriate, it actually means dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. So here's the thing. What, what is it that the world tells us to be confident in? Right? I mean, I think from day to day, from advertisement to advertisement, from conversation to conversation, the world is always telling us a myriad of different things that we could have confidence in or that we should have confidence in. Right? What Altruism, good deeds, a healthy bank account, a fulfilling relationship with a spouse, worldly safety and comfort, a degree of study that has been accomplished. Right? If you just get this thing, then you'll, then you'll get this thing. And they're almost always compounding, right? Like if you, if you study well, then, then you'll get into a good college. If you get into a good college, then you'll get a good job. And if you get a good job, then that means you'll have a good retirement and you'll, you'll be able to provide for a good family, and, right? And so it's always the next thing like, that, to have confidence in, right? And if you just do this, then you, you'll, you'll, you'll attain it and then you can have confidence in that because it's gonna allow you to reach the next thing to have confidence in. And my hope, brothers and sisters, is that this morning, like Paul, we would be freed from that. That we would look upon all of those things that, that are not inherently bad in and of themselves, and that we would say, for the sake of Christ, I will consider them loss. Now, for some of us, we, we might not really know, like, <laughs> what, what is it that, that really drives me? Like, where is it that I really put my confidence because I say it's in Jesus, but a lot of times I feel like it's in X, Y, or Z. And so I'm just going to give you a, a diagnostic question to ask yourself. What are you most hopeful of attaining? Or better yet, what is that thing without which you feel the most agony? And whatever that thing is, that you should be willing here, today, now, 
to consider loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Lay that thing down at the feet of Jesus, knowing that in him we have received every spiritual blessing. Now, I, I want us to take, um, take a moment here and notice, notice really what it is that, that Paul is doing. Because what, what, what Paul is, is doing, he's not going to say that those things which he has done previously are bad, other than maybe the persecution of the church part. Right? And I think even for us, like owning things is not bad. Striving for, you know, a, a, a different job or for a degree or for whatever it might be, those are not inherently bad in and of themselves but they become murderous to us when we place our confidence in them. They're they're insidious, right? In that they can sort of silently turn our confidence away from the one confidence-worthy thing, which is Jesus. So what Paul tells us to do is not to divest ourselves or to remove from ourselves works or to remove from ourselves all of these things that we should just sort of live in a hermit shack for the rest of our lives while we wait for Jesus to appear. He's saying we should do those things. But he's saying that we shouldn't put our confidence in the fact that we do them. Here's what it, I, I guess if I could lend to us an illustration, and I think it's one that Paul um, is alluding to when you look at this in the original language. Um, imagine, imagine that you were in a boat and you're, you're, you're sailing along. Maybe you've I don't care what kind of boat it is or, or what kind of journey you're on, but most likely you have some sort of, some sort of provision among you, right? You've got things that you need, things that um, are, are helpful for the journey. You may even have some things that are luxuries, comforts on that journey. And then I want you to imagine that you see the storm coming. And none of us are sailors in here, most likely, I don't think, um, if so, you have a cool job and I want to talk about it. But, um, but, but what do you do at that moment? Well, what the, what the well-trained sailor does here is they toss everything overboard in hopes that by making the boat lighter, like they'll arrive at harbor safely more, more quickly. And so look, there's, what, what, what Paul is saying is not necessarily that we're just going to dump everything out of the boat because but that when push comes to shove, that when times are desperate and dire, don't put your confidence in any of these things. Put your confidence in Jesus. Be willing to throw those things overboard, to count them as loss, because what you will gain is safe harbor. You will arrive safely at home. And for us, that means safely at home in the presence of of a good, gracious, kind, and merciful God who has exhibited to, that to us all in the person and work of Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 9 and he says this. I'll take the last part of verse 8. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, this can actually be a, a little bit better translated, and I'm not saying I'm smarter than the people that translated this Bible, but um, it could be translated and find them in him, and find them in him. So, so what is Paul saying, right? He says, he says that he's considered all things loss, that he might gain Christ, 
that he might not have a righteousness of his own that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right? He says he's going to find all that which he has lost in Jesus. That everything that he has set aside, that everything that he has been willing to put away from himself for the sake of taking up Christ, he now gains in Christ. And that's the beautiful foolishness of the cross is that when we approach it, yes, we lose everything, but also we gain everything that we've lost and more. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. All of our loss is replaced with greater and truer gain. And so look, we, we asked earlier, what is it that you're most hopeful of receiving? Or what is that thing without which you feel the most agony? And for every Christian, the following few verses should be our answer. Verse 10 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we should be most hopeful of receiving Jesus. We should be in most agony when we walk apart from Jesus. And in the resurrection, we can be confident that we in fact will receive Jesus. If we're in Christ as symbolized by our baptism and the communion table, then we are not only buried with him, but we are raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And it's in this confession, it's in this truth that our whole confidence is both found and guarded. It is this truth of which Paul says, it is safe for me to take you here. That when we graze upon the good pasture of the gospel of Jesus, that there it is safe for us as his sheep, as his flock. That the good shepherd leads us besides still waters. That with the good shepherd we shall not want. That though we lose all things, all semblances, all trappings of this world, that in Christ we gain all that we need and all that we desire. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is what draws us together. This is the active agent which rearranges, messes up our entire life and world. And look, it is worth it because in Christ, all is found. I want to read for us Romans uh, 5 verses 1 through 5, which I think will will help us to understand this because I, I think that when we read verse 11, we, we might get this feeling that like Paul is going back to, okay, so wait a minute. So I have to attain resurrection, right? Like, so it's back to like what I have to do. And that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that it's gonna be a struggle and that living like Jesus is hard and that humility is hard, and that living peaceably with other people is hard, and that, and that all of these things that God calls and draws out of us, the poison of sin that he sucks out of our, out of our marrow, like that, that all of that is going to be hard, and yet, at its conclusion, we will attain the resurrection. And so Romans 5, 
I'm just going to read verses one through five. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, just like, just like a few centuries ago, along with, along with the reformers, along with Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and Jan Hus and all of these other men and women, we today can confess that our salvation is found in Scripture alone by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray.